So you're with the Two Smoking Guns, and um, we're here today with a special guest, and it's a topic that's been piquing our interest for, for a little while, Scotty and I, and that's the topic and the new sport called pickleball, and many of the listeners will know that we've been discussing it with no great knowledge about what we're talking about, which is typical of the way we roll on this show, but we thought we'd do some research and we thought we'd get an expert in, and um, I'm joined today by David Wassell. And he is the founder of Bayside Pickleball. Um, so he's going to basically give us the whole rundown of this wonderful new invention, uh, Pickleball. So welcome, David, to the show. And firstly, because I'm a total novice and an ignoramus on the topic, what are the origins of, of Pickleball? I, I, I've seen it. I don't know what it is, uh, how it started, but um, that's why you're here, I guess, to illuminate us and give us a bit more knowledge about the topic of pickleball. So, uh, over to you. I'll do my absolute best uh, yeah. in regard to that. The, there's no uh, conjecture about the origins, but there is some conjecture about the origins of the name. Yes. The, uh, the game was started by uh, uh, a senator and a couple of his uh, senior local people uh, in Washington. Uh-huh. They went for a holiday to Bainbridge Island uh, where they had a bit of a compound there with an outdoor uh, badminton court and uh, they were there with a bunch of kids running around and a dog and a dog, this dog had what they called a wiffle ball, a plastic ball with holes all over it. The kids would throw the ball for the dog, the dog would chase it and bring it back to them. Except they were running backwards and forwards across the badminton court where four fellows were trying to have a game. Uh-huh. So they decided we've had enough of this, they galled all the kids together, uh, they dropped the net down to tennis net height, so to speak, got four table tennis bats, took the ball off the dog and said, OK, we're going to invent a new game. <laughs> and that's that's where it started. That's a brilliant story. Uh, uh, and the name, uh, uh, it's not necessarily uh, the real story, because as I said, there's some conjecture, but the name Pickleball, the dog, uh, every time the ball went out of bounds, the dog would chase it and uh, bring it back to them. So uh, that, uh, that was good for them and for the game, and the dog's name was Pickle. Ah, uh, see, so that was the thing I wanted to clarify, because... As soon as I hear pickled, I think pickled onions from the old fish and chip shops. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to do with that. It's just named after the dog. Named after the dog. Brilliant. Okay, you're not so, so, <laughs> so from there, um, what, what, how do they invent it? Did they just invent a court? Do they have dimensions around it? Well, the dimensions of the pickleball court today are the same as a badminton court. Uh-huh. They don't have as many lines, and the what we call the kitchen line or the non-volley zone is about six or seven inches further out from the net than it is on a badminton court, but essentially badminton courts all over Australia are being turned into uh, getting a new life with pickleball. So they get retrofitted for pickleball. All so you can use one line. same court, add one line at the and front. One line. Uh, near uh, the net. Seven foot from the net, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and lower and, the net. And lower the net, yeah, and you're away. So the net is tennis height. It's two inches lower than a tennis, so it's 34 inches in the centre and 36 at the outside. Right. Uh, and uh, it's six metres wide, which is the width of a badminton court. And we're using a table tennis bat or something, uh, no, a the, variation the, of that? has been refined somewhat since yeah. then. The game really only got legs commercially or professionally in the 90s in the US, and now there's millions playing it. Uh, but uh, the paddle itself that you use is about twice the size of a table tennis bat. Uh, and a lot of technology them now with uh, the core materials, which are basically polypropylene, but there's variations of that. Mm. And the outside surface, uh, there are variations of that from fiberglass. Oh, it started with, I guess, card painted, uh, printed cardboard, but it's now, uh, there's fiberglass, carbon fibre, graphite, uh, there's all sorts of uh, surfaces now. And pickleball paddles can range from $50 to $500. So every time you invent a new sport, the money's made in the equipment. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. It's not, uh, it's not as expensive as, say, tennis rackets or some yeah. other sports. Uh, the equipment is actually relatively low cost. My, my ambition in the small business I started here is to keep it at community level pricing. It's a grassroots yeah. sport, yeah. community sport. It's got to be accessible to everybody price-wise. How many badminton courts are there in Australia compared to the States? Not as many, I would have thought, or am I wrong? Don't, don't know. Good question. Yeah. Uh, most community... Uh, major sports halls, uh, you know, indoor sporting centres, have basketball, netball, volleyball, sure. badminton. So they're 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 a, a bit of a uh, uh, a fruit salad of lines when you get on there. But most of them have a badminton court mark somewhere, uh, and that's where the proliferation uh, has come from. Uh, but then there are other 
venues who yeah. maybe have... That'll be someone ordering a pickleball bat right now. Uh, yeah, we'll get rid of that and we'll turn that off. Um, yes, that's... That's all right. Uh, um, so, yeah, the, the, there are tennis clubs. I mean, only recently Tennis Australia did indicate that uh, tennis clubs around Australia should start looking at pickleball uh, because tennis in many places is diminishing. Well, I was wondering about that. So before I jump into into that, because I think that's the demographic, isn't it? The people that potentially enjoy tennis have played it all their life and for one reason or another, normally bodies, mm-hmm. um, are probably getting to a point where it's just taking a bit of a toll. Um, so is pickleball... When you serve, is it the same service action or is it more of a, an underarm serve to get it in play It's kick an un- off a rally? Underarm serve and yep. uh, th- there's very few points won on the serve. They're more, more an error from the receiver than the, the, the power of the serve. Uh, it's underarm uh, and uh, it, the, the, the idea of the serve is to get it as deep as you can uh, to f- keep your opposition back on the baseline. Uh, the idea from the, rec- the receiver is to keep it Send it back to the server as deep as possible, also. So, not uh, like tennis where you've got to serve it into a service box. Oh, yes, you've got to serve it into a oh, service you do. box, yes. Okay. Uh, service box is, uh, yes, uh, so the serving positions are the same as tennis mm-hmm. uh, forehand, backhand, you know, across court, you know, from corner to corner. Uh, but uh, you've got to have two bounces. Oh. That's got to bounce on the receiver's side, and the receiver returns to the server, it's got to bounce once there also before you can move in and volley. And uh-huh. you can only move into that line seven foot from the net called the non-volley zone uh, before you can actually volley the ball. Because I did see that and I thought that was a great idea because if you got to the net, you could dominate the game and shut down the, 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 the rally quite quickly. But being that far apart, the footage I saw there were tr- some tremendous volleys at the net going on. Yeah, the, and that's probably the exciting bit of the, the game. The essence of the game is that it occurs mostly between those two seven-foot lines. Yeah. Uh, there's a shot called a dink, which is a, a shot played on the bounce inside that area where you can hit the ball on the bounce. Uh, but the rules are designed essentially to make the game as even as possible. So that's why the non-volley zone uh, keeps people back from the net and well, keep, it off. keeps the giant six foot seven blokes from, from dominating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, that's that's then great for reflexes. I would have thought because uh, as you get older, um, you don't you don't lose your reflexes. I find, but you do lose your ability to run to get the ball, kind of thing. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, I know a few people that have Parkinson's, uh, and their professionals have yeah. recommended to play either table tennis or pickleball because you don't need to, it's not like tennis where you've got to wait for the ball to come and make a, a, a suggestion, it's instant reaction stuff. Yeah. We had a woman at, uh, at the Manningham Pickleball Club over at Doncaster Way who came to play pickleball last year in about July uh, on a walking stick, uh, having trouble with her movements, she had Parkinson's. She's now running around a pickleball court without the walking That's stick. brilliant, isn't it? That's because outstanding. Because it gets that motor skills going. Oh, she's without... so happy. Yeah. She's so happy. And her husband, you know, who's been a great support for her, uh, you know, he said it's changed her life. Yeah, terrific. So, no, I like that. Mm. I like that about it. Because often, you know, beyond tennis, if you can't play tennis or golf or those sorts of things anymore, you have probably reduced to, to lawn bowls or something like that. So yeah. pickleball is a great for and lawn bowls is a great sport too yeah, for is. those that love it and yeah. want to do it but uh, there's plenty of us that want to stay active Correct. and uh, yeah. uh, my dear old dad had a great saying we must always have something to look forward to and looking forward to a game of pickleball is uh, something that keeps a lot of people in this country right now very excited so that leads me then to the demographic because with an aging population in america and i guess australia all over the world really the potential for this to to, to be taken up as a sport is massive i would have thought America, uh, the USA Pickleball Association were bragging, I think about three or four years ago, that their demographic was six to 106. They had people actively playing in that, in that age band. Uh, we have, uh, for example, at Bayside Pickleball Club, we have uh, some young ones there, 12, 14, 16, coming down now regularly and playing and loving it. Uh, uh, but we also have people in their seventies and eighties. So yeah, no, good. Well, that's good. That's good. So what's the what's the retrofit for tennis clubs all over Australia, of which there are many, and I've um, I've been known to play the country circuit or the mm. grass courts at 
places like uh, Kerrang and Shepparton and those sorts of places. You know, there's, there's tons all over yeah. country Victoria. Um, what's the opportunity for them? Can they easily retrofit to, to play pickleball? Well, you can drop the net two inches. That's pretty easy to do. Uh, you draw, Just draw some new lines. Draw a line seven foot from the... Uh, See it uh, from the uh, from the net, yeah. uh, which uh, and then you draw another line one foot behind the service line, and two uh, two lines three foot in from the from the uh, from the tram lines, and you've got a half a pickle. So ball all, you, ball. all you need is a line marker and a line marker or some tape, 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 yeah. and there's some paddles and a ball. Uh, you know, for a couple hundred bucks you're up and running, Perfect. Uh, and it gives the club another life, something else to sell to their members, something else to engage their members and make them want to keep coming back. We're doing. Uh, a day down at, uh, I'm doing a day on the 5th of March down at uh, Lakes Entrance, where the Lakes Entrance Tennis Club in their open day now are introducing pickleball. I've just done a day, two days, last Tuesday and yesterday down at, uh, down at uh, Inverloch, where we did it at the community hub down there, uh, where they've got four badminton courts, but we're also the tennis people come up and I went down to the tennis club and now they're going to do it down there as well. Brilliant. We're about to do it at uh, Terralgan Tennis Club where there's 24 courts. Uh, they're keen to get involved because there's already a group playing at Terralgan and the club think, well, we should engage with those people. So uh, it's uh, it's happening everywhere. It's great for community, isn't it? Lots happening in schools now because yeah. uh, schools have all of a sudden seen that there's a major petition in the USA with millions of signatures suggesting that pickleball will be a demonstration sport at the 2028 Olympics. Uh-huh. Okay, and that petition follows through with a full Olympic sport at 32 in Brisbane. Wow. So a lot of kids coming in there saying, I want to play. I, yeah. I can play this game. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be good at this. Uh, and, you know, so uh, there's plenty of action in that space as well. Halebury College, right now, right this as we speak, running a pickleball session today, tomorrow, and Friday. Uh, St. Bede's College have already done it. Brighton Grammar is showing interest. Uh, it's happening next week at Epping College. It's happening at... Uh, oh, there's a whole lot of schools coming on. Mate, I can't... You've been busy, mate. I have been busy. The, the most exciting one was, uh, you know, the author John Marsden, who wrote yes. that wonderful series of books for kids called Tomorrow yeah. When the War Begins. Yeah. Uh, he's got a school that he started in the style of the schools from those books uh, in the bush up near Romsey. And uh, I went up there and did a, a, a whole day come and try session with them. They've now put pickleball gear in up there in the primary school. The kids are loving it. They Fantastic. are loving it. Fantastic. So. Fantastic. And there's money coming in in America. I, I was reading something that a lot of celebrities, and you take this with a grain of salt, but there's a lot of people investing in the sport. I'm just not sure why and how they intend to get a return, but, but maybe uh, you could... Share some share some light on what's going on there. Uh, yeah, certainly. There's not there's not the money in the sport in Australia. Obviously, yeah. it's a grassroots sport. We don't have a professional circuit in America. There was two professional circuits owned by millionaires or billionaires. Uh, the US APA said that's not working. Uh, there was competition. It was just wasn't working. So they've closed them down and started now a major league, pickleball major league, and it's I think 24 teams in two conferences. Uh, I think uh, you can buy a team over there in that major league for about 20 mil. Uh, wow. It's a big drink. So uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is the IPL revisited. Uh, it, yeah, it, well, it's, it's playing to a huge audience. Yeah, they played the last US Open over there, the finally last year in the main, main court at Flushing Meadow. Wow. Uh, and the stadium was full. So what, what, what these investors, these sports investors who play major, like, uh, uh, you know, Rene Brown, uh, the, the fellow, uh, the basketball... I read a basketballer got involved, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the big fellow just been in the media a lot. I can't remember their names. Kyrgios, Shaquille O'Neal, was he involved? No, no, not Shaquille O'Neal, no. LeBron James. LeBron James. Naomi Osaka has also invested with uh, Kyrgios in a team. Uh, and uh, so, hmm. 2014. But what, what these people are seeing is that people turn up to watch it. Yeah. So there's everyone that comes in, there's a click on the ticket. Right. Uh, and, of course, then all of the vendors... Not a there. huge outlaw, I would have thought. They're just retrofitting courts or, in some cases, building purpose-built. Oh, America, America, full of custom-built courts. Yeah. Full up. You want to see some of the facilities over there are amazing. We had a visitor from America, uh, a couple, uh, who came to the Bayside Pickleball Club when they were here in Australia travelling. Yeah. Uh, they wanted a they wanted pickleball fix. And uh, <laughs> the fellow, he was a fireman in Los Angeles... Uh, the woman, she uh, heard she'd been a tennis uh, coordinator, if you like, at a country club not far out of Los Angeles. 
uh, and she started playing pickleball, introduced it there. There are 24 tennis courts and now eight tennis courts and 34 pickleball courts, dedicated courts. Wow. It's taking over. Taking over. She, well, Fantastic. They, they had a street protest in Los Angeles last year, I think in about November, of tennis players protesting about the fact that pickleball was taking over all the, all the courts in there Los Angeles. Fantastic. Yeah, so, it's, uh, it's, so how do you see it rolling out in Australia just as the grassroots thing, just to get community tennis clubs and netball clubs and, and footy clubs getting more people involved because it's a new activity, um, something that's uh, available for all ages, as you said, and mm. probably all abilities. All ages, just, all abilities. Just, just yeah. to get people involved. Um, that's probably where it starts. I guess if it gets, if it ignites, then we might even see some some tournament activity yeah, well, going on. I think you'll find tennis uh, has recognised that pickleball is getting a, a big following, and that's why they've asked their clubs to investigate. Yeah. And which is why we're getting this influx of inquiry into pickleball Victoria. Uh, and getting you know, pickleball coaches to go out and talk to people and try and advance the game. Uh, we're hoping that we can get uh, the just recently retired Australian of the Year, the immediate past Australian of the Year, Dylan Alcott, uh, onto a pickleball court because he's retiring from tennis uh, and there's plenty of opportunity for that uh, all abilities stuff as we talked about. Uh, oh, he'd be all over that. Too, oh, yeah, well, he's a young fellow with a great brain. You know, he is, he's he's a ripper. just so enthusiastic yeah. about stuff. So we're looking forward to getting him in there as an ambassador for all abilities pickleball, uh, which of course will become part of the Olympics once, once pickleball gets in there. Brilliant. Uh, Brilliant. Uh, the so, game. So, so um, as an ambassador and promoter and and, and founder of this thing, um, you'd be pretty busy. Uh, semi-retirement doesn't look much like <laughs> much like it was supposed to. I started this as a, a hobby business. Yeah. I said I, when I started the club, uh, I had to buy some kit from a. Uh, a company in Queensland, and I thought it's a bit expensive. That's yeah. what encouraged or enthused me yeah. to uh, start this business so I can provide the product at a grassroots price, yeah. at a community price. Uh, it's getting busier. Uh, it's not. It's not like a local sports store. It's not a source to income. No, it pays its own way. But, uh, but at it's my, a love. It's at a my passion. age and stage, I don't need to be doing it for money. If I'm doing that, I've done something wrong. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but uh, it's. Uh, I spent a year on the on the on the. Uh, Board of Pickleball Victoria, where it was a great experience, uh, and uh, I'm now on a subcommittee there for promotion of the game and sponsorship. So uh, we're always looking for sponsors. We've always got lots of events happening. So that's another part of the of the role that I, I am struggling with at the moment. It's getting <laughs> getting sponsorship in these days is a bit hard. It's pretty because, tough. It's uh, pretty tough. Life's tough. Yeah. Life getting expensive, which is why pickleball is fantastic because people can turn up. Uh, membership of pickleball, uh, say Bayside is $85, most of that money goes to Pickleball Australia and Pickleball Victoria, whom provide all of the umbrella insurances for both public liability and injury. Yep. Uh, yep. And if you're a, a, once you join a club and become a Pickleball Australia member, you can play pickleball anywhere in Australia. You can walk into a club you know, in Cairns, if you like, say, hi, I'm from Melbourne, I play pickleball, all of a sudden you've got a whole new family, you've got a whole new bunch of friends, and you know what it costs to play for a couple of hours? Five bucks. There you go. So Brilliant. it's very affordable, it's very achievable. The money uh, that clubs charge for these sessions goes to pay for renewing balls, yep. paddles, yep. nets, and generally usually paying for stadium rentals as well. So uh, the growth of the game is quite strong. When we started Bayside uh, two and a half years ago, we were the seventh venue in Victoria. There are now 39 in that Brilliant. short space of time. So. Um I'm in Bayside, we're sitting in Bayside, we're actually sitting in the lovely surrounds of the Sandringham Club in Bayside, uh, where we're both members, but where can I get a game? Uh, you can come down this afternoon to Hampton RSL uh, at two o'clock, where we play for two hours, followed by Brilliant. something to refresh us, because we're probably a bit warm by that stage. Nice, cool refreshments uh, on, I'm into. Uh, and Sunday afternoons at uh, from 1.15pm, uh, we play at Thomas Street at the Netball Centre there. Yes. Uh, our ambition, uh, and we've made a submission to the council, or our president, uh, Joe Nichols, who's a local here, who uh, has got great experience in that uh, not-for-profit area, because she, uh, uh, when her son got ill when he was quite young, she started the movement Brainwave. Uh, and she's yep. currently the president of the Pickleball Club and did a, an outstanding presentation to Bayside Council and their recreation people a week ago for us to take over the centre at Thomas Street and turn it into a dedicated pickleball centre. It'll be for Bayside a first in Australia if they can uh, see wow. the wisdom of that. Uh, and that we hope could happen at the end of this year when uh, the netball has moved from Thomas Street to Hollywood Street. 
Hollywood? Yeah. Yeah. No, Hollywood. Um, I know where you are. Yeah, uh, I know where you are. There were the netball courts. Sandy Secondary. Secondary College, yeah. Well, mate, um, thank you for illuminating us because uh, I feel so much more uh, knowledgeable about the sport. Um, congratulations on your promotion of the sport. Um, you've obviously done a magnificent job getting the word out there. Um, and it sounds like something really exciting. I'm keen to have a hit. It's fun. It's yeah. fun. And the only warning I give everybody, it's a little bit addictive. Yeah, I it's, imagine. It's that rare thing that's addictive that's not going to hurt you. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, come along, have a hit, uh, and we look forward to seeing you then every week. Brilliant. Well, David Wassell, thank you very much. Um, Bayside Pickleball is a thing. It's, it's out there in the community. I encourage everyone to go and have a hit. Search and Bayside Pickleball Club. BaysidePickleballClub.com. .com.au. Lovely. The website will be up shortly, but we're on Facebook. Uh, and if you want to know about pickleball and where it can be played, go on to pickleballvictoria.org and click on where to play, and you'll see all over Victoria. It's growing so rapidly, there's sites everywhere. Brilliant, mate. Well, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank and, you. And um, I'm looking forward to going and having a hit. Be Look, brilliant. Looking forward to it also. Cheers, mate. Thanks. So we've talked for a while about uh, booze on this on this radio station and um, and what's going on with it, but uh, I I need to know more about one specific variety of of of, of wine, and that is champagne. Um, it's something that I've uh, I associate it with celebration. I associate it with um, the start of a an evening or. Uh, someone's birthday or something like that but it's more than that so I thought what I'd do today is get in someone who's a an expert on the subject of champagne so please welcome Sally Hillman from and her business celebrating champagne which we'll get on to a little bit later welcome Sally thanks Ratsy that's all right thanks and, for um, having me on so we're going to talk all things champagne today sure it's a topic that uh, you've helped me get educated on far more than I was yeah and I've enjoyed the last year of getting to know the uh, the lovely drop yes um, but I thought for the listeners of the show we might dive in a bit deeper today and just explore the concept of champagne where it comes from what it is um, what are all the different types of champagne um, what's good and bad about it, and all of that sort of stuff. So we'll cover a bit of ground today. Yeah. So I thought, I thought I'd kick off because a lot of people associate champagne with bubbles, fizz, you know, and they don't really understand what's going on until they get to the fridge at Dan's and go, what am I going to buy for the birthday? And there's this concept of Australian sparkling versus champagne. And uh, I think most, most people know that champagne is French and it's from a region of champagne, but... Tell us a little bit more about where champagne is and where it where it comes from. Sure. Okay. You're right up my alley there. Something <laughs> that is very dear to my heart. So um, champagne is a region, um, but it's also a drink. And we like to define that by saying big C is the region and little c is the drink because mm -hmm. often people muddle that up a bit. But yep. if we start with the place, it is in France. It's north east of Paris it's about a 40 minute train drive or train ride you can drive out there too if you want to take your own car if you're staying in yep. Paris um, and it's one of the most northerly grape growing regions in Europe mm -hmm. um, what happens further north from Champagne is mostly about beer okay uh, so in so saying it's that, closer over to the German border. For sure. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Right. So I understand. So northeast France, yep. close to the German border. Yeah. So yep. if you think about where Alsace is, it's yep. sort of, it's quite close to, you know, just putting that a, a drop pin on a map, um, that's where it is. So it's um, pretty challenging climate, very, very cold in the winters. Mm. And, hilly? Uh, yes, yeah. it can be hilly more probably undulating yep. um it's not extreme hills but undulating but you do get that lovely roll so that that's how the grapes can get all the variation of um the the slope the temperature where the sun hits all that sort of thing I and mean, that's um what are the some of the towns for those of us who love geography what are some of the towns up there that we'd recognize so Reims and Epernay are, are the probably the two main names Reims is the um, commercial capital of Champagne and Epernay is probably what we like to call the heart of Champagne because right. it sits right in the middle of the Appalachian 
Um, on the river. On the river, yes. It's where the famous Cote Blanc is, where all the beautiful Chardonnay-based champagnes come from. Beautiful. So, yeah, it's... And then there's a, a, another region down south, the Côte de Bar, which not many people know about, but that's also part of the Appalachian. It is a long way from Reims. It's 100 kilometres. In Australian terms, that's not much, but in yeah. European terms, it's, it's quite a, a lot. Yeah. And that part of the Appalachian sits right down near the border of Chablis. Okay. Um, Burgundy. Um, so it has a different terroir. It has a different soil makeup, and consequently, the wines are different from down there too. Now you hear that term a lot when yep. it comes to wine terroir, mm. and especially in Europe, because we don't tend to tend to have that. We do have that term in Australia, but you hear that often. So yep. terroir, spell it for me. T e r r o i r. And how should we be saying it? Okay. <laughs> Terroir. Terroir. Yeah, okay. that's it. Beautiful. Yes. <laughs> and uh, tell us about that. So it's a French word. You can't define it in English, but it is the combination of the soil, the geography, the topography, the microclimate that goes into a certain little plot of land that causes an effect on the grapes How as the grapes they grow. grow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is why wine is so fascinating, because mm. everywhere it's grown in the world, there is a different terroir. Exactly. And yes. therefore, the grapes behave differently, even yep. if they're the same grape variety. Sure, that's so, exactly right. Yep. That's, that's, uh, for, for those of you who know me, uh, that's why <laughs> I love the wonderful world of wine, is that everything's different. So uh, that's great. So that's champagne. Now, it's designated, isn't it? It's, it's, um, it's a designated origin of control or yes, uh, you know, whatever the French word fiercely is. Fiercely protected. Yes. Fiercely protected. So globally now, and people be aware in Australia, we can't call Australian sparkling champagne because of that mm-hmm. um, intellectual property or yes, whatever. Yes, it is. The... Yeah, there's a um, licensing and you know, all um, trademark protection against the word champagne and it's going on now with other sort of great varieties isn't it and so, foods too and foods, yeah yes. cheeses and all that yep. sort of thing you're seeing a lot of it happening so it's a great way for the growers to protect yeah their ip yeah absolutely mm. so so you can't call australian sparkling champagne what do we call australian sparkling i guess well we? you, or... yeah australian sparkling méthode traditionnelle because yep. a lot of the australian sparklings use the method traditionnelle yep. to make their sparkling but Obviously, they can't call it champagne, but they do. I think on some of the bottles, you can see méthode yeah. traditionnelle is what they will um, pop on there to tell you that it's made similarly to champagne. We just, but we just can't call it that. Exactly. So I go to the fridge yep. at the local bottle oak, yep. and um, it's someone's birthday, mm-hmm. and I have to get champagne. So there's the traditional labels there, aren't there? There's there's Mourm, um, there's Moet. And you, it's not Moe, is it? It's Moet. No, you do say Moet. Moet. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's Verve Clicquot, there's Tattinger, there's all these. Yeah. So they're all the commonly known ones, but I imagine there will be thousands of varieties or hundreds of thousands, I don't know, how, how many varieties of, of French champagne, how many growers are there? Well, we know there are at least 360 growers in in the Champagne All putting out their own. Yep. Yeah, or wow. some selling on to the bigger houses, like you just mentioned, the Grand yeah. Marc, as we call them, the big brands. The big brands. Yeah, yeah. And they're huge globally. Oh, they're massive. You know, and they sell all over the world. Yep. And we were talking off air about the concept of vintage versus, um, so the, for, for the listeners, vintage is the expression of a wine that year. That's And correct. it might be different next year or it might be different the year before, the year after. So. Mm-hmm. The lovely thing about following a particular brand or great variety is some years are better than others because weather's different and conditions are different, so you're going to have a different outcome. Um, with Moom and a lot of the big brands, is it fair to say that they try and keep things relatively consistent? Because champagne's a blended wine, so they will always have a crack at turning out something that tastes the same year on year because that's what the the punter wants to... Yeah, you're spot on, Ratsy. Yeah. So the modus operandi of the Grand Marc or the big houses is to produce the same wine that's their house blend or their entry level year upon year upon year. That's the mission of the chef de cave or the, yeah. the cellar master. Um, and that's what they do really well. You know, you can go to Dan's and buy your bottle of Verve Clicquot and you know it's reliable. It's, it's going to taste the same whether you buy it here or in yeah, America. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's, 
what tell me about the other ones because I know you run a business which we'll get onto where you bring wine into the country, but it's not those um, big brands. It's it's specialist providers who do wine a different way. But before we dive into that, Champagne's typically a few three grape varieties. Typically, I know there's there's out there's people that can do it more. Yeah. But it's we always think of Chardonnay as the main grape, but there's also other grapes. So talk mm. to us, talk to us about that. So um, interestingly, yes, there are three main grape varieties: uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Meunier. And each of those in a traditional blend will offer a different perspective to the mm. wine. So Pinot Noir is always considered to offer the structure and the backbone, and yeah. Um, really just hold the wine in its place. Chardonnay is the one grape that offers a bit of finesse and crispness and elegance in the blend. And then Meunier or Pinot Meunier, as some people will know it, but in Champagne they now call it Meunier. It offers fruitiness and roundness to the blend. Um, Your point before about Chardonnay is the one we all know. Pinot Noir is actually the greatest in terms of volume grown in Champagne. Yeah. yeah. So um, we do all think white wine, white grape, but yeah. it's actually the it's combinations the, of. the combination of, but the black skin grapes actually are a higher percentage in most blends. So that means... They just don't have contact with the... Well, they can have contact with if they're making pink uh, yeah. champagne. Yeah, they can. But generally the way they, <clears throat> excuse me, they press the grapes is um, in a, a cockard press, which is like a corkscrew. And they just gently press the juice out and drain it straight away from the grape. So there's so no no contact, no contact yeah. so no colour transfer yeah. from the tannin in the skins. Um, but, yeah, going back to your original question about um, are there other grape varieties, yes, there are. There are actually seven allowed grape varieties in the Champagne Appellation. In terms of the rules? Of, yes. Yes. Very strict rules. It's mm. one of the most highly governed appellations in the world, um, down to the point where the Comité de Champagne will tell the grape growers when they're allowed to pick at harvest. It's, like, yeah. really, really controlled. But that's what they do, and they create a great product. So we just let them go to it. <laughs> Um, so there are four other white varieties of grapes. There's Pinot Blanc, yep. Pinot Gris or Fromenteau. There's Arban and Petit Meslier. Never heard of those. <laughs> well, you might have heard of Pinot Gris. Oh, oh no, Pinot Gris and Pinot yeah. Blanc. Oh. Yes. Um, but not the other two. Yeah, so yeah. they're just white varieties that... Um, just are, add a bit of something different. Yeah, they actually are using them more and more in Champagne because they're fighting the climate change um, that's going on in the Appalachian where it's getting warmer and warmer, yeah. obviously. And these extra four grape varieties add freshness. Okay. They add a bit more crispness. I mean, think about a glass of Pinot Gris, for example. It's quite um, tart on, yeah, your, on your palate. Yeah. yeah. And that's what they're using to blend in okay. to keep the freshness in, um, in the champagnes. Now, you've been over there. Yes. And you're a lucky girl. Yes. <laughs> um, have you had an opportunity to talk to the, the winemakers or the, the people that are blending? Um, yes, if you visit the houses, you can. Yeah. Um, and I have done that um, on a top level. Um, but through COVID, um, we did some fantastic interviews on yeah. Zoom where we would coordinate the right time and get um, some of the champagne growers and producers to come in on the call and then obviously have an audience of clients as well. And that was one of probably the best things that I ever did in COVID. I think so, because you they'd explain what they've done and then you're probably sitting there with a glass of yeah. it in your hand. Yeah, yeah. we all were. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it was great fun. Awesome. Really good fun. And obviously looking forward to the next trip. So, um, you know, that's... Uh, so how, I mean, without, I mean, how do I get my hands on something that isn't mum? Ah, well, <laughs> that's a good question, Rutsi. <laughs> Let's talk about your business then. Let's dive straight there. So okay. it's called Celebrating Champagne, which is a wonderful name. Thank you. Um, tell me about how that started. What's the origin of okay. all of that? Well, I've always been really passionate about champagne. Yeah. And um, the business uh, is an accumulation of all of my life experiences in work yeah. all in one place. So an interior design is something I love. Cooking is another thing I love. Um, 
I've been in retail in women's fashion, so I understand how to run a business. So all of that piled in together and that became sallyhillman.com.au, mm. Sally Hillman Celebrating Champagne. Um, and it started really because I'm passionate about the grow of producer champagne, which is not something we've touched on, but it's um, the point of difference is the grower producers are tiny little holdings of land yeah. and the people who grow the grapes are like farmers. Mm. So they tend to the grapes. Traditionally, they won't use as many chemicals or none if they can. Um, and then they make the wine. And their wines are reflective of the terroir year to year. So what we're getting in a grower producer champagne is really the true essence of champagne itself, the place. Yeah. Because you're actually drinking a wine from one little patch or yeah. a couple of little patches of land blended together. And honestly, I, I like to say once you've tasted a grower producer champagne, you You'll just never go you back. can't go back yeah. because you get the taste for it. And and it's artisanal. It's, it so it's is. very bespoke, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So that's where my business started. Um, I entered a competition back in 2018 run by the... Um, Bureau of Champagne in Australia, who is the offshoot of the Comité de Champagne, and it was um, it's called the Van de Champagne Awards, and you submit eight, uh, sorry, six essays, and from that I became a finalist in the amateur section. So I understood that my level of knowledge was actually really good, and I felt confident to move forward and start the business based on that because the the passion is really there and you know that from your own experience absolutely um and to be able to communicate that through to um clients and almost see the light bulb go off when they taste the difference between a grand mark and a grow producer it's it's really exciting it's and, and have and and oh, we have had we've had yeah. that pleasure of doing that <laughs> and it's a fantastic experience if you can do it sally does run wine tasting so you Go to the website that's uh, been described. Or just give me a ring. Or give her a ring. Yep. Um, but the whole concept of a flight with champagne mm. is very, very uh, illuminating for me because you do do the, here's a Tattinger versus a grower producer wine. Yeah. And the differences are quite remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Without being... Um downcast on the Grand Marc, no, I, I find right. that they're, they're muted on the palate. Like you, mm. you don't get the nuances of salt and um, salinity and brininess and or red fruits, for example, if you're going more to a Blonde Noir blend. Mm. Um, but they're great. You know, they're really good champagnes for the right purpose. But if you want something really, really interesting, the grower producers are where to go. And you were explaining to me, because you also bring out glassware. Yes, yeah. Because the taste of champagne, depending on the vessel in which you drink it, mm -hmm. can change remarkably as well. Absolutely. It's all about the glass. Um, it makes the difference. So we import a range of glassware uh, directly from champagne. Um, it's a brand called Lehman Glassware. And... Uh, what the company has done is they've worked with Chef de Cave, uh, Sommelier, and they've used their knowledge of working with clients to influence how they would design the shape of a glass. So there's four signature collections. The one we love the most for Champagne is uh, designed by Philippe Jamès, who was the uh, chief sommelier at Domaine Leclerc in Reims, which is a five-star Michelin, five Michelin rated hotel. Yeah. Um, and his influence was to take us away from the the coop or the. I remember my parents used yes. to have <laughs> the coop. For those who were listening, was the one that's like the martini glass. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> where they used to be very elegantly trying not to spill it at yeah. dinner parties in the seventies yeah. with Sergio Mendes and Brill sixty five in the background <laughs> or something like that. Mm. And then we went from that to the really tiny skin flute ones. That's right. Yeah. Which you could hardly get your mouth, let alone your nose, into, yeah. which which didn't really appeal no. much at all either. No, so there, this is a nice, like, this is gold sort standard right in the middle. Of, it's a no. blend of both, taking the best of everything. Because with the tulip glass, that's what we call it, huh. it's wide at the point where you want the aromas to yep. elevate into your nose so you can really appreciate the um, what's in the wine. But then it tapers back to the top for a slightly narrower opening so that you don't lose all the effervescence. Yeah. And obviously, too, um, you're not going to have 
the coolness of the champagne disappear too much either because you hold it by the stem, um, which is a really important thing to remember. Talk to me about bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> Effervescence, bubbles, whatever yeah. you want to call it. What are they? How mm-hmm. do they occur mm-hmm. without getting too sciencey on sure. me? Sure. So it's, it's carbon dioxide in the yep. wine um, and it occurs over a couple of fermentations. So um, that's it in a nutshell, pretty much. I mean, I can go into a lot more depth. Obviously. No, we don't need to go into malleoactic no. fermentation <laughs> or anything like that yeah. because I have studied that. But yeah. We don't, we don't need to yeah. go there. But um, obviously uh, for the punters out there, uh, a wine, a glass, of, a bottle of champagne doesn't last long in my house, no. as you know. But if you're on your own and you want to have a glass, how do you keep it um, best. fresh? You okay, best. so um, never with a silver spoon in the top. No, um, that's we have discussed, discussed that. bit of an old wives' <laughs> tale, that one. Um, the best thing is just to use a very um, well-designed stopper. Stopper, yep. yeah. Yeah, and obviously you can find those through my business. Uh, we have two varieties which are... Will keep the carbon dioxide in the wine um, and allow you to then enjoy it the next day if you yep. want to. So if you want yep. to have like a, a just a glass, like I did last night, I opened a bottle and it's sitting in my fridge now with the stopper on, and it'll be fine to ready drink. to go. Ready and the to top, go, and the clock is ticking. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we might have one in a minute. We might, yes. <laughs> so, um, so back on the business. So, um, importing from how many different uh, grower producers? You've got a range that you support? Yeah, so I've got a couple of um, houses that I'm importing, always on the lookout for more. Um, So, yeah, that's on my radar very much this year. And I imagine post-COVID you're itching to get over there and discover a few more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a big trade fair coming up in April called Planton, which is uh, the tasting trade fair. And you do run tours, so anyone out there that's interested in (laughs) uh, having a visit to the wonderful region of Champagne... Hands up around the around the table yeah. here. Um, get get on to Sally because she uh, she does run a beautiful little bespoke little tour. Yeah. Uh, to areas that you wouldn't otherwise get into. And growers you wouldn't get to meet either. So yeah. some that are on our website who are just really little, but yeah. we have relationships with. So them. the wine and the glassware all comes via via yeah. your website. Yeah. What's what have you discovered? Have you discovered people really? Are opening their eyes more to to these grower producer champagnes. Has business been good? Yeah, people been really interested in exploring those. For sure. Um, what I like to do is show them with food. So yeah. I always think that's really important because um, the way they're made, they really go just beautifully with. You know, if it's cheese and charcuterie or a proper sit-down meal, you can take champagne all the way through a meal. Mm. Um, and because the grower-producer champagne is a bit more vinous or wine-like, they can be treated as a wine. So, you know, if you're eating lobster, you might think, oh, I want a white wine. But think of a blanc de blanc or a white of white champagne yeah. and you'll be right on, you'll be on the right track. I always go with the oyster blanc de blanc combination. Yeah, it's pretty... Pretty faultless. It's pretty hard to beat. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yep, yep. And then I don't know where to go, but okay. uh, but you have educated me a little bit. Yeah, on, on champagne goes with how everything. How that works, yeah. Um, it's because of the high acidity in the food, in the wine, it cuts the fat off your palate. So um, a blonde noir, which is a white of blacks style of champagne with all the red grapes in yep. it, is perfect with duck. Yeah, and you know go. how fatty duck is, yeah. you know, it can sometimes be a bit overwhelming, but if you have a beautiful blonde and noir um, champagne with duck, it just cleans your palate and adds the complementary flavours into the duck to really make the experience quite seamless. Um, thank you. That's great. Yeah. Um, so for those that want to find out more, please do visit Sally's website and subscribe to her newsletter because it's a ripper. And it's very educational, so uh, I'd highly encourage that. Um, sugar. Yes. Or dosage, yes. as we call Ooh, it. Yes, you were uh, listening. I, I have been listening. <laughs> so dosage, sugar, uh, is a thing in champagne, clearly. Yeah. Um, talk to me about, I think this is where we get into the descriptions on wine labels that people might might not uh, understand, but there's brute, extra brute, yep. you know, dry, sec, you know, mm-hmm. all those sorts of descriptions, mm. they all relate to the sugar yep. content or the sweetness in the wine. So mm. talk to me about when they add it, how they add it, and uh, sure. or do they add it? Because I know some of your grower producers add none. Yep. And I've had some wines uh, from 
there that are quite interesting. Yeah. yeah so. so dosage is the uh, small amount of sweet liquor. Mm. It's a secret recipe in most cases um, for each champagne house that they add back into the wine after they've disgorged. So disgorgement is the removal of oh, the, the leaves. deadly yeah. dead yeast in the yeah. bottle. And obviously when you pop the cork to get rid of those dead cell, um, yeast bits and bobs, um, you lose a little bit of the liquor in the bottle and you've got to top it up. So some growers choose to top it up with this liqueur de dosage, which is, as I said, secret recipe and influences then what happens to the wine once the cork goes in. The amount of sugar in that can vary yep. and it can vary from what we know as do, which is like super, super sweet, um, 50 grams and more, all the way down to brut nature or zero dosage, which is actually no sugar. It's just more of the wine added back, back in. in. Yeah. So if you then take that to the next level, you can see that there's a whole range of champagnes that go from lots of added sugar all the way down to none. none. Mm. And brut, which is around about, um, well, falls between six and 12 grams, um, mostly sits around six grams. Which is typically what, the, what we call dry, yeah, dry yeah. earth. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you go and get a um, Verve Clicquot, for example, off the shelf at Dan's, that's got about nine to 10 grams of sugar in it. Yep. Um, if you take a grower producer champagne, they're always trying to minimise the sugar that goes into the wine because they find that it... it Overshadows the... The terroir and, and what yeah. they're trying to achieve. Okay. So um, they tend to be extra brut and brut yeah. nature or zero dosage. So um, And then some of the very highly commercial yuck stuff is <laughs> high sugar. Yes, yeah. it yeah. is. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's, you might as well have a can of Coke. Yeah, that's right. That's the way I see it, yeah. you know, because the sugar component is exactly the it's same. It's just overpowering everything else well, that's going on. it's hiding something. Yeah. That's the way I see it um, yeah. without obviously casting aspersions. But um, if you've got a good wine, you don't want it to hide behind anything. You want it to actually come through. Now, you let me in on a secret. Right, yes. which, I, which I, I find fascinating. The low dose or the no dosage champagnes, mm. because of the fact they've got no sugar in it, they can't give you a hangover. No, they don't. So you can drink them all day and all night and wake up fresh as a daisy. Pretty much. Which is what you do. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying you do do that. But I've, I've seen you sit on champagne all day and going, how's she still upright? And yeah. you're saying it's, it's a no dosage. Well, no dosage and the low, the low. Yeah. low and also... Less. So it's the equivalent in, in, in beer language of having a no alcohol beer or a low yeah. alcohol beer. It's the Pretty same much. sort of concept that you're not ingesting alcohol, yeah. mm. so therefore you can go longer, although it's not as, it's not as filling as beer. Well, clearly you can go all day. Right? Yeah. yeah. The other thing just to tip into that as well is that um, generally, I mean, I'll sit on a grower-producer champagne that's low dosage, so yeah. I'm also not consuming as many chemicals. Yeah. So that's the other thing there to remember. Go. But the sugar is what gives you a hangover. Well, I think it's interesting because for me, mm. as a Philistine, I was, <laughs> uh, even a year ago, yeah. I'd equate champagne with, if I have two of those, I'm falling over. Mm. Because, of, and then probably I was drinking the wrong champagne. But with a bit of knowledge mm. yeah. and a bit of forward planning, um, it's it's quite interesting. Yeah. Because I mean, you can you, enjoy it and enjoy it and enjoy it and not feel like you, you're getting too wobbly down the hallway. No, it shouldn't. I mean, obviously you want to eat a little bit with it and yeah, be responsible you in your consumption. But um, yeah, you should be able to enjoy it as you would enjoy a bottle of red wine. Yeah. That's the way I see it. And in fact, it is a wine. It's just got some gas in it, you yeah. know. That's nice it. one. Yeah. Um, now, a couple of quick ones. Sure. I'm serving you champagne. Mm -hmm. I've seen your technique, but describe it for the listeners. Um, what's the best way to serve it? Obviously chilled. Yes. But is it better out of the fridge? Is it better on ice? Uh, You've got a little secret yeah, and I, I want have. you to share. Okay. So you should never store your champagnes in the fridge because yeah. the light can affect the wine. It's called light strike. So keep your champagne like you would a mushroom in dark the dark. Dark and cool. Yep. Dark and cool. That's it. So in the bottom of the wardrobe or under the bed... And about 15 minutes before you want to drink it, bring it out, get your ice bucket, put the champagne in, fill it with ice, like from wherever, then tip in a little bit of cold water. Make it like a slushy, kind of. Exactly. And let it sit yeah. for 10 minutes. And in that 10 minutes, the whole bottle will be chilled to perfection and you're ready to go. So all you need is like 10 to 15 minutes up your sleeve 
if somebody knocks on your it's door a and great says, treat. time for champagne. It's a great <laughs> treat. Uh, and it's interesting about the, the fridge thing too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone puts their champagne in the fridge and thinks they have to call and never put it in the freezer. Oh, my no. God. No, that's a real no. that's like, a no-no. That's a big no-no. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. little tips out there. Yes. Is, I love the practical <laughs> tips. Makes yeah. all the difference. Um, now, is there any difference if I'm serving um, um, a rosé champagne mm. or, or, a, or a pink champagne or whatever the term is? Yeah. Um, any difference or the same? Um, well, obviously, it's a different Person. colour in your glass. That's Person, a... Personal choice, but should you serve it colder or? No, 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 no. It, the temperature should vary depending on whether you're serving a non-vintage or a vintage. So you want to serve the vintage champagnes a little bit warmer because you need to let them open up a bit more. Mm. Non-vintage or what we would all drink sort of day-to-day, probably serve it on the cool side, around about 10 degrees is the perfect temperature to be serving a non-vintage champagne. Beautiful. Mm. Now, what else do I need to know about champagne? Ooh, um, goodness me, what else? We've covered a lot today. <laughs> we have. Um, so, um, food pairings. Yeah. So, give us a bit more on that because I tend to just go with seafood and champagne. Yeah. It's a one wood for me. Yeah. Easy. Um, cheese and charcuterie I haven't tried as much, but I imagine... It's a winner. It, it, it's a winner. It's a winner. Um, champagne and cheese is one of our favourite things to recommend obviously there's a lot of fat yep. in cheese and um as we were talking before about the duck the acidity chops through chops through Beautiful. It, and it's a really nice way to spend an afternoon with a group of friends just popping a few bottles and lingering over a, a nice cheese platter a bit Very of charcuterie so. on the Love side it. i always approach champagne as in think of it as a wine yep. so find out what's in the blend and then as you would food like you think steak you think red wine so yeah, for yeah. a champagne, you can do that's a good way of steak, thinking about it. A blanc de noir, a white of red, so that's all the red grapes in the blend, and that's going to be a perfect combination with a beautiful steak. So I say champagne goes with everything, and it does. It just depends on getting that combination right. But look at what you've got in the bottle. Beautiful, mm. beautiful. Well, it might be time for us to go after talking about <laughs> it for a, half an hour. Have a I think we might just investigate what you've got left over from yesterday and have a quick one. No. Uh, and um, thank you, Sally. That was very illuminating. It's a pleasure. Uh, again, the website to go to is Sally Hillman with two L's mm-hmm. um, and two N's. <laughs> oh, no, no, one N. One N. SallyHillman.com.au. All things champagne, celebrating champagne. Sign up to the newsletter. Get yourself educated, join a tour, uh, have a tasting. It's a lot of fun. I mean, the, 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 the tasting we had with all our friends the other day was just a hoot. Yeah. Um, and as soon as you get a few champagnes in people, everyone becomes a mini expert <laughs> and has an opinion. And it's very, 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 very funny. So uh, I, I fully recommend that. Thanks for the time today. I hope the listeners have enjoyed learning a little bit more about the wonderful world of champagne. Um, the secret next time is when you go out to buy a bottle, look past the big brands and try and find yourself something that's a little bit extra special and if you can't there's a website you can go to to find one so uh thanks once again sal thanks for having me it's been a pleasure so much fun santé santé see you soon Bye. bye